Welcome to What Grinds My Gears, a weekly mess of crypto buzzwords, finance follies, and big ideas. We're your hosts, Melton Demers and Jill Carlson, and we'll examine the fascinating, bizarre, buzzworthy, and downright cringeworthy world of crypto. Love it, hate it, we don't mind either way. We're just here to grind some gears. This podcast is presented by Blockworks Group, the only media production company I trust. For exclusive content and events on crypto, visit them at blockworksgroup.io. The year is 1821. A young Scottish man has just returned from an exotic war in an exotic land. He claims to be the prince of a land of riches called Poyais, and he begins to sell dollars and bonds. Now, unlike the Fire Festival fiasco, this man actually owned the land, which was a swamp located near Nicaragua. Companies in London started sponsoring loans at an issue price of 80%, and this bond was secured on the general resources of this new country, Poyais. The issue was a massive success during its time. Stockholders were granted the option of exchanging their bond at any time for land in Poyais of an equivalent value, and thousands upon thousands of Londoners rushed to take up the script. These Brits actually took to ships to lay claim to this land and arrived in Poyais to find it little more than an uninhabitable jungle. Now, once news spread back to London, which without the internet took quite some time, the Poyais issue quickly became worthless and everyone who had bought these bonds found themselves out of the money. Now, this guy who sold these things was a scrupulous scammer and he miraculously was able to secure more debt against the assets of this country, Poyais. And what this story illustrates so well is what happens when a country issues debt against a largely fictitious asset, and what happens when a speculative bubble of retail investors, hungry for more return, forms around these assets. But what happens in a country where the assets and the situation of the sovereign is better known? How do countries in our world today raise money? What secures these loans? And how does sovereign credit actually evolve? From Jill Carlson and Meltem Demirers, this is What Grinds My Gears, a weekly analysis of the bizarre and buzzworthy happenings in the world of cryptocurrency. What does Poyais have to do with the financial practice of any modern country? Well, Poyais was issuing debt of questionable worth and legal status, and it turns out countries today are doing the same, just this time with tokens or digital currencies. Iran, Venezuela, the Marshall Islands, these countries all have something in common. Now, what interest would a state have in issuing a token? There are a lot of potential reasons, but the ones that we'll be exploring in this episode is fundraising for that country. If you turned on CNBC at any point in 2017, you'll know that lots of startups and entrepreneurs used initial coin offerings, or ICOs, to raise funding via cryptocurrency. Well, it turns out that countries and sovereign states also got into this game. This is part two of our series on credit. Last week, we discussed consumer credit and the questions that remain around decentralized lending systems. This week, we're taking on sovereign credit, a topic near and dear to my heart, and specifically what happens when companies and countries start fundraising via tokens instead of debt. 
We'll kick off with some background on sovereign debt markets before we get into the implications of tokens as debt alternatives. So, what is sovereign debt? Well, sovereign debt is basically debt that is incurred not by an individual or a company, but by a government. Now, in the crypto world, one of the words that people love to use is sovereignty. And sovereignty really means right to rule. So in this case, when we use the word sovereign debt, really what we mean is a government or a governance structure issuing debt. Um, Taking out loans, not just for people like us, Jill, Governments often need money, uh, say, you know, they want to build something new, maybe there's a shortfall, but you know this better than I do. Why do governments want to borrow money? Yeah, so there's a whole host of reasons. As I mentioned, you just covered two of the main ones. Maybe there's a special infrastructure project going on, some project that hadn't been budgeted with the tax resources that the government had raised, or maybe the government is just facing, as you said, a shortfall of tax revenue, and they need to fund that gap. Alternatively, maybe it's just cheap for them to borrow money from the market and they're being opportunistic, that they can see that the market is in a good spot right now for them to be able to go out and raise funds, and they're doing it to sort of save for a rainy day. And today, generally, the way this works is the government of a country will issue bonds by calling up a bank like J.P. Morgan or Goldman Sachs and saying, okay, we want to meet this fundraising target by issuing bonds on sort of this timescale. The bank will do an audit of their books, and then the bank will syndicate that loan to specialist accredited investors, so both mutual funds and hedge funds. So rarely are individuals getting into the game. Uh, but it's usually institutional investors who are involved in these markets. So I want to make a little side note here because I think what you said just now is really interesting. Sometimes governments just want to raise money because it's a good time to raise money and they can do so cheaply and with little effort. Um, Interestingly enough, much of this logic is what was used during the ICO boom of 2017 and 2018. That's very true. I recall talking to a ton of companies asking them, well, what do you need $50 million for? And their response to me, well, want and need are two very different things. We don't need the money, but if people want to invest and give us tokens, who are we to refuse their desires? And so I just wanted to put in that little <laughs> aside because I think it's uh, it's something that people don't appreciate often enough. Sometimes you issue debt just because you can, and it's super cheap. We'll get into that a bit more, but let's talk a little bit about how sovereign debt really originated. Yeah. So, I mean, it's interesting. Greed is not just the domain of the individual. It's also the domain of corporations, startups, all the way on up to governments. And greed is also not something that's isolated to a given period of time. It's not just 2017 and the ICO boom. This goes back in the case of sovereign debt, all the way back to 16th century in Europe, as monarchs and local city-state officials turned to local merchants to provide them with funding. But these monarchs, perhaps predictably, were pretty unreliable when it came to to paying back their debt. Uh, I think that monarchs at the time probably felt that their sovereignty was enough that they should be able to get away with debt forgiveness in a way that countries and individuals really can't uh, anymore. So the rates that these monarchs would get on their loans, they were pretty high, reflecting the risk of non-repayment. It turns out that this trend got better over time, again, as I said, uh, because 
people and governments alike no longer get away with those repayment records that they had back in the day. Well, and I think an important thing to note here, just as the Poyer's issue highlighted, just as you're highlighting here with the origins of sovereign debt, really what this is about partly is information asymmetry. And what you're describing evolving over time is something you talked about last week and something I know you're passionate about, which is the evolution of data markets around credit. So today, when we look at a sovereign issuing debt, you're pretty quickly able to see how much debt they've already issued, what the term of that that debt is, meaning how long or short the duration is when it has to be repaid. And so today, I would argue there is much more information and data transparency around the issue or debt type someone is buying. And so um, I think that makes markets hopefully a bit more efficient. But I want to do a quick rundown of some of the key facts about sovereign debt, because I think they're really interesting in terms of just placing sovereign debt in the right place in someone's mental picture of the global market. So will you indulge me, Jill, to talk through some numbers? Take it away. I know you love your <laughs> facts and figures. Oh, it's you know, a math I, major over here. Go I for just, it, Milton. I can't help myself. All right. So Jill, before we go into this fact rundown, why don't you quickly disambiguate between government debt and sovereign debt? Because I think it's helpful for listeners to know. Absolutely. So government debt generally refers to a bond issue that's issued in that country's local currency. So for example, when the United States issues treasury bonds, that's an example of government debt. When Brazil issues bonds in Brazilian reais, that's an example again of government debt. Now, when Brazil issues bonds in US dollars, which they also do, that's an example of sovereign debt because there the country is issuing a loan in a currency that is not its own. It's issuing a loan in a quote-unquote hard currency. I know some crypto fans might take issue with the idea of the US dollar being a hard currency, but trust me, in mainstream finance and in emerging markets, it's still considered that today. Let's let it slide. So let me run through these facts quickly, and then we can dive right into the topics we want to get to. So first of all, what's Great. I'm happy that it sounds good to you, Jill. It doesn't grind your gears, does it? (laughs) Not yet. (laughs) All right, it might. Um, And I'll probably mix up government and sovereign debt, but I will do my best not to. So most important to note um, is that government debt typically sets debt prices. In most markets, uh, government debt is viewed as the safest asset, and it's what other debt is priced on, including corporate and consumer debt. So let's just look at the U.S. debt market. Today, a 10-year treasury note yields 2.6%, roughly. A corporate AAA-rated bond, meaning the highest-grade corporate bond, and I think there actually may only be one or two corporations that at this point still have a AAA rating, but that pays 3.81%. And a home mortgage or consumer credit for someone with an above-average credit rating is around 47 or 5%. So as you can see, The lowest amount of yield is government debt. Um, The second is corporate debt. And then the third is consumer debt. Now, obviously, depending on what information we have about the creditor and uh, their history of repayment and their financial well-being, the rate that they pay will differ. Uh, Secondly, the market for debt is huge. So government debt is a larger market than corporate debt and corporate equities. 
The market for U.S. debt in particular is the most liquid market in the world. In U.S. bonds alone, uh, roughly $700 billion of treasuries change hands each day. So that's a lot. The global bond market as of today exceeds $50 trillion, and the value of the entire global stock market is roughly that and may even be slightly smaller. Another thing that I'll note is at this very moment in time, there are $10 trillion of debt that has negative yield. And what that means is if someone who buys that debt holds that debt to maturity, they will lose money. So an example is I would pay $1,000 today to get $999 five years from now. Now, if that sounds crazy, it's because it is crazy, but it's also because the demand for government debt is typically a measure of the demand for safe assets. And right now in this market where assets are in turmoil, equities markets are volatile, there's a huge demand for perceived safe assets, i.e. government debt. I don't know, Meltem, that negative yield, it sounds like a stable coin to me. (laughs) There's there's high demand for those, right? So I can't even get into stable (laughs) coins. But the last point I'll mention on debt that's important to note is um, just like every corporation has a treasurer, and every ICO should have had a treasurer (laughs) that would manage their corporate debt and sort of balance it. Um, Every country also has an institution that manages their debt. So when I worked in corporate treasury at ExxonMobil, back when Exxon was a AAA-rated company, we were constantly adjusting how much short-term and long-term debt was on the balance sheet. And what you try to do is optimize the price of leverage or the price you paid for access to credit. Now, a country is always doing the same thing. Now, what that means is they'll issue new debt to replace or buy out old debt that's more expensive. And the debt manager of a country is basically trying to raise capital by selling debt at minimal cost. And so to finance the deficit, they'll sell debt into the market, and that debt will be priced, adjusted, rolled over, renegotiated periodically to make sure that country's doing a good job managing the cost of borrow. All right. So we've just covered how sovereign debt can be among the safest assets in the world, but it's important to note that this is not always the case. So we talked earlier about the monarchs of 16th century Europe and their inability to repay their loans. Well, it turns out that this dynamic amongst sovereign debt issuers hasn't changed everywhere in the world. And we want to just give you an example of what happens in sovereign debt markets when things go awry. Because remember, it's not like an individual. You can't just send a repo man to a country to get them to repay your debt. It's a sovereign market. And so what can you do? So this all played out recently in Argentina. And this example is near and dear to my heart because I was working on a sovereign credit trading desk at the time this was all playing out. So Argentina, a little bit of background, first defaulted in 2001 on its sovereign debt. They tried to. What do you mean when you say default? So Argentina first defaulted in 2001 on its sovereign debt, by which I mean they failed to repay one of the payments on one of their loans. They tried to negotiate or restructure, as we say in the industry, with their bondholders. Most of their bondholders, about 97% of them, accepted a new deal with Argentina that would have Argentina repaying the loans, but on a more favorable time time scale, time horizon for the country, and a less favorable one for the bondholders, but still it's better than getting nothing. 3% of their bondholders, however, refused the deal. For a while, this looked like a pretty weird move, because remember, it's a sovereign nation, what are you going to do about it? 
And really, what can a couple of guys in suits or Patagonia vests, as as hedge fund managers tend to wear, uh, do in, in the face of basically a government, a country, a treasury, a military? Well, as it turned out, they could do quite a lot. This group of hedge funds had found some language in the bonds that they owned that guaranteed that Argentina could not make any payments on their new bonds without first paying back the old bonds. So as soon as Argentina started to pay out the new restructured bonds, those hedge fund guys did what any good New Yorker would do, and they took the country to court. What ensued was a decade-long legal battle that at various points went all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, involved the seizure of an Argentine naval vessel off the coast of Ghana, yes, a hedge fund did that, and resulted in some very unbecoming language thrown, thrown around by hedge fund managers and cabinet ministers alike. So, Well, seizing vessels, Jill, this is actually something I'm experienced in, sadly <laughs> not in debt markets, but I will say global commodity markets during the Somalian pirate crisis of 2008 felt oddly like this. Um, <laughs> we dealt with some pirates and negotiating with them, I will say, was really interesting career moment. We but- had no pirates here, but we did have vultures. So, <laughs> <laughs> so let's Let's take a step back. So what I think is really fascinating here. So number one, um, whenever someone defaults on their debt, just like what happens with consumer debt, in the last episode, we talked about socialized loss pools or loss pools that companies might have to accommodate for this. I think in this situation, um, the idea that you know debt should get restructured to enable bondholders to at least get something back is really interesting. And there's also the issue of recourse here, which is another Mm -hmm. thing we discussed last week. And here, there's the question, and in sovereign debt markets in general, there's the question of, again, what recourse do you have in the face of a government, in the face of a sovereign entity? Well, it turns out sometimes you can have quite a lot. Well, and I think this is where the multi-jurisdictional aspect of global sovereign debt and government credit markets becomes really interesting is you have New York law, you have Argentinian law, pardon. So these are two different uh, governments. These are two different legal systems. But the other piece that I think is really important to understand that goes back to where I think crypto investors find themselves in 2019 is, well, who actually read these contracts carefully? And if you invested in an ICO that went kaput, Uh, Maybe you have gone through some of those documents and read them and reread them with a much more careful eye. What I do think is interesting here and the reason why lawyers are in such high demand is because the legal language and the structure of the debt and what it's backed by and how it can be pursued um, can be really, really important. Yeah, I I don't know if you'll recall this, Melton, because you made a lot of fun of me about this. But the very first blog post I ever wrote was after a night of you and I hanging out together and ranting uh, a lot about just the state of the ICO market. And I wrote this post about messy markets, it was called, and the importance of reading the fine print and having a contract in place. But I remember the ICOs did not. We'll link it in the show notes. Enough on that. But it was 1 a.m. Um, it was like, like, it was after a holiday party where um, it was a big, like, corporate holiday party. I remember this so well. And I feel so sorry for 
the four other people who are in that room with us at three in the morning after like many bottles of wine. Anyway, we don't need to subject our listeners to it now as well. But now that we have a sense of sovereign credit markets and the shenanigans that go on with it, let's make this more interesting and add the crypto twist and explain why we've titled this episode Initial Country Offer. But Jill, is it more interesting or more dysfunctional when we add the crypto twist? (laughs) Arguably, it's both. 2017 was the year of cryptomania, but arguably real use cases for these assets have remained unclear. It seems, however, that for a handful of nation states, they may have found an actual application for this technology, issuing their own digital assets. Now, the first case study that we want to discuss is that of Venezuela. Uh, So following Venezuela's default last year, they issued their own cryptocurrency called the Petro. Now, why would they do this, Melton? It's because they can. (laughs) Indeed. So because they can, and also because the United States government sanctioned Venezuelan debt. Now, there was this whole messy situation going back a little over a year ago, a year and a half ago, wherein Venezuela defaulted on their bonds The United States sanctioned their bonds such that Venezuela was basically blocked out of capital markets. Venezuela couldn't restructure. Remember, restructure means negotiate. In this case, negotiate a defaulted uh, bond. They couldn't restructure with their holders. They couldn't go back to investors to raise more money because the United States had basically blocked them out of these markets. Now, and by the way, I just want to pause here and say this isn't something new. Sanctions, um, economic sanctions have long been a tool to try to um, influence global politics, to try to influence what the US or other countries may perceive to be regimes that are harmful to the world in some form or, or another. Their own citizens in this case. Exactly. And I think the other piece here is, again, effectively what these economic sanctions did. I talked about the role of a debt manager or, you know, in a corporate case, it would be a treasurer, someone who manages debt, rolls over issues, issues new debt to repay or pay off old debt. Basically, what happened is through these sanctions, Venezuela was prevented from managing or restructuring its debt. And so when you can't fulfill this very critical debt management function, which in every other country, every other economy happens without any eyebrows being raised, um, it becomes very, very difficult for the economy to stay functional, right? What happens when debt markets implode or when a sovereign's debt comes under question is basically it leads to everyone pulling their money out and nobody wanting to do business because every other type of debt is predicated on that local government's debt. Now, in this case, it's important to mention that this was all very intentional by the U.S. government. The situation in Venezuela is deeply complex. We cover it in episode five, if you want to learn more. But I do think it's worth saying that the country of Venezuela, the Maduro regime in particular, had basically been defaulting on its people for a period of about five years, as opposed to defaulting on its own bondholders. This is very problematic. People have been starving, suffering a massive humanitarian crisis there, while rich, fat hedge fund managers in New York continued to get richer and fatter off the back of Venezuelan's bond, uh, the Venezuelan bond payments. That's a story for another time. All you need to know in this case is exactly what Meltem just outlined, which is Venezuela found itself in a bind as soon as these sanctions got stepped up and as soon as they stopped paying 
their initial bonds. Now, we've talked a lot about in the past cryptocurrency being a form of regulatory arbitrage. So if you're a country in 2017, 2018, and you suddenly have regulations that are unfavorable to you enforced upon you by another government, what do you do? Maybe you look to cryptocurrency. And in the case of Venezuela, that's exactly what they did. So they issued a digital token called the Petro. I'm not going to call it a cryptocurrency per se, uh, because it's not decentralized in any way, shape, or form. They issued a digital token in lieu of debt in order to try and meet this fundraising need that they have. Let's talk about what the Petro is, though. So when the Petro was issued, the idea and the reason it's called the Petro is me as an oil and gas person. Um, Venezuela sits on top of a very rich natural resource reserve in the form of oil and gas. And historically, there have been oil and gas exploration projects and production projects, particularly off the coast of Venezuela. Now, what happened when these sanctions hit Venezuela is not only did it impact the ability of Venezuela to manage its debt, it also meant that most corporates in the world, i.e., say, an oil company that wants to extract resources from the Venezuelan um, sort of gold mine, proverbial gold mine of resources, can no longer do business there. And so what you have is this massive resource that's sitting there untapped, unexploited. You have a government that's unable to finance itself. And so lo and behold, the idea was born to take the petroleum resources that Venezuela had and to use them as collateral, quote unquote, and we'll talk about why the quotes, for this issue. And so the name Petro was born, and the idea of the Petro is that this debt, which is represented as a blockchain-based token, is collateralized or secured using the natural resources of Venezuela. So Jill, do you want to just quickly talk about why that's so problematic? Yeah, sure. So I, I mean, there are many, many things that are problematic about the Petro. In terms of the collateral in particular, it's not clear at all. Like usually when you collateralize a loan, when you securitize, or sorry, secure a loan, not securitize, when you secure a loan with collateral, it's a very specific set of collateral and there are very specific indentures or uh, clauses in a bond document that says how that collateral can be accessed, what needs to happen in order for you to have the rights to that collateral, et cetera, et cetera. All of that is missing here. There is none of that going on. There are no actual formal legal documents around any of this. Wait, 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 Jill, you didn't read the white paper? <laughs> and that's to me, honestly, this episode's very serious. This topic's very serious. But to me, the moment where I sat back in my chair, my job basically dropped. I think it was, you know, February of 2018 is when someone started talking to me about the Petro white paper. And I was just floored because the idea of a government writing a white paper for a shit coin they were going to issue is pretty much as far as it can go. I mean, it's, it's so dystopian. The images, if uh, we should link this in the show notes as well, but the images of Maduro, the at the time, the president of Venezuela, sitting in front of this big, it's like a big circle with a P on it as the Petro token. It's just, it's, 
It's insane. It, it would be comical if the situation there was not so dire. It, it was insane. It's so. It's also but, worth mentioning the technology situation around all. That's of this, what right? I wanted to talk about. Yeah. So this is where it started to get really interesting. Is what happens when arguably debt, quote unquote, from a sanctioned country meets crypto. So initially, the Petro was going to be issued as an ERC-20 token. What that meant is as a smart contract on top of the Ethereum network. And what people very quickly started to realize as more and more people were talking about ERC-20 token for the Petro, um, and someone even said it was a great moment, quote unquote, for crypto adoption, which made me literally want to vomit. Very much. <laughs> Who said so, that? Who said I that? Name no, me. No names, but it ground my gears to such an extent wow. that I threw my coffee cup down on the ground and I said, for F's sake, and I had to walk away and just scream at a wall. It was so obscene. But I, I can't think of anything further from the Ethereum culture, from like the DevCon unicorn space cats culture, than a socialist dictator issuing a cryptocurrency in order to evade sanctions. Like that is it was insane. Mind-blowing. But here's what I started to realize and what the conversation quickly turned into is if you're having people buy Petros, right, you have to buy the Petros somehow by quote unquote, meaning you're exchanging something for the Petro. And in the case of an ERC-20, it was going to be Ethereum and maybe some Bitcoin. But also you now have a country that is sanctioned issuing an economic asset tied to a protocol where you can very quickly see, and this is something we talk about a lot in Bitcoin actually, is Ethereum now becoming actually non-fungible once it has touched any sort of Venezuelan entity's account or wallet. Because it's a sanctioned entity, you can't take US dollars from a Venezuelan entity and use them. The country is sanctioned, meaning it's blockaded from the financial system. And indeed, in fact, not in the case of Venezuela, in the case of Iran, which we'll get into in a little bit, there have been Bitcoin addresses that have been linked to Iran, which have been sanctioned by the US government explicitly. Right. And there's a long history of this. But the other piece I just want to talk about quickly. So in my view, really what happened in Venezuela, and again, episode five, we talk about this in more depth, is Venezuela realized it couldn't issue debt in the normal market anymore. So they created a new type of debt in this form called the Petro, and they forced the Venezuelan people to use this debt. And they didn't make it tradable by only banks or those specialized entities participating in the US bond market like you talked about, but by everyone. And so really the digitization of this debt instruments um, as a token could hypothetically enable creation of a secondary market for this debt. So what I think about that's so dystopian is could we eventually see a new sort of market evolve for sanctioned countries where countries like Iran, Venezuela, North Korea, countries that are sanctioned and cut off from the rest of the world's financial system could trade their own debt amongst themselves on a blockchain that they all control and run as a blockchain-based token. Yeah, and I mean, I think in a way, this is we're starting to see the hypothetical beginnings of this. But it's important to remember here, that this doesn't work in the larger debt markets. In fact, this was one of the most surreal moments to me as someone who's been in crypto for a little while, was to see the United States issue an executive order stating, 
and I quote, any digital currency, digital coin, or digital token that was issued by, for, or on behalf of the government in Venezuela is also subject to sanctions. This is real. This is something that President Donald Trump actually came out and said. Like, if that doesn't blow your mind, then I don't know what will. But to your point, you could imagine a world in which there is a whole other kind of parallel debt market that these countries that are are sanctioned by the larger market, or maybe even just by the United States specifically, could issue and trade amongst themselves. And again, we're already starting to see this in Iran. So let's jump to Iran. Meltem, do you want to kick us off there? Sure. So look at the example of the Petro. Iran clearly is a country that, like Venezuela, has rich resources, has a lot of oil reserves, but Iran is also under U.S. sanctions, and they have now been exploring issuing their own token in order to skirt U.S. sanctions and to find a way to access the global debt market. Um, What's interesting here in the case of Iran is there is this rising sentiment, and I'm going to take a detour actually for a moment to just the broader world of global politics and global markets. What I think is really interesting here is so we talked just now about the idea that sanctioned countries could potentially create a market amongst themselves in which they could trade, buy, sell debt. And we could see that extending to other forms of exchange with the use of digital currencies. After all, if all you need is a peer-to-peer software client and access to the internet to run this infrastructure, that starts to really get interesting and troublesome. But the other thing I think is interesting is the formation of local monetary ecosystems. And this is where actually, ironically, um, Donald Trump's former strategy advisor, uh, Steve Bannon, had been making the rounds in Eastern Europe and been doing some talks about the potential for Russia and some former um, uh, Eastern Bloc countries to come together and to form their own economic activity area using a digital currency or a blockchain network. You could see something similar, you know, think of one of the largest cartels in the world, OPEC. Coincidentally, Iran and Venezuela are part of OPEC. With a number of other countries that are on, you know, somewhat steady, unsteady footing with the U.S. government. Apparently, you know, we care less about someone killing journalists than we do about their ability to buy U.S. weapons. But that's not a topic for this. (laughs) But I will say, you know, a lot of politics are showing. (laughs) uh, I'll stop. I'll stop. I know it's unattractive. But staying focused on this topic at hand, I do think it's interesting now that we've introduced this idea of digitizing and creating networks using blockchain technology, quote unquote, and that's very loosely used because in most cases, really all you need is these countries to run their own nodes. Um, But what you start to see is this really interesting ability for actors who do not want to participate in the global market or who can't participate in the global market to form their own markets. And that is, in a way, really terrifying, but in a way also um, really interesting because there are use cases you could see where that could be beneficial to society. But let's go back to Iran. Yeah, I I do want to make one note. We never finished on the technology that the Petro was built on. I want to clarify, it was not actually issued as an ERC-20 token. As best we can tell, it was issued as a token on the NEM blockchain, but it's also not clear at all to what extent there's 
more than one node running this, to what extent it's actually running on a blockchain, it might just be a database. Um, now, but, but that's, hold on, Jill, that's what I want to ask. Who, who actually bought the Petro is what I'm curious about. Because when I read the white paper, they wanted to raise some obscene amount of money. And my question is, who in their right mind would buy the Petro? So it's abundantly unclear who actually owns it and whether or not the Venezuelan government even raised any money off of it. I can tell you one thing for sure. It was definitely not big institutional investors who are usually investing in sovereign debt. Wait, Uh, the institutions are not coming? (laughs) Not to the Petro, anyway. To the best of our knowledge, the people who bought in were basically government supporters. It was more of like a signaling thing than anything else to say, we support the revolution, we support the Maduro government. and and less of a financial or monetary instrument. And it's interesting to return to the case of Iran. If Iran were to issue its own debt token, it would be interesting again to explore this question of, is it even possible for them to raise funds through this? If so, who are the people buying it? I can tell you it won't be U.S. institutions or U.S.-friendly institutions. In fact, lawmakers in Congress have already introduced legislation to monitor and regulate interactions with any hypothetical Iran-issued digital currencies. So there's already a Senate bill on the table titled Blocking Iran Illicit Finance Act uh, that addresses these rumblings around Iran's digital currency stating that it will impose sanctions with respect to the development and use of an Iranian digital currency, which again, this is all just kind of mind blowing in a very dystopian way to me that, that we're even talking about this. But Um, I think it's important to be aware of, because I think what we're highlighting here, again, it goes back to geopolitics and power, right? He or she who controls the money supply controls the balance of power. And I think what we sometimes forget in the US, and I say this as someone who grew up outside the US, but also have a family that lives in Turkey another country that hasn't struggled with sanctions, but has struggled with maintaining currency stability and maintaining access to debt markets in some cases as well. I think if you live in the US and think um, from the perspective of someone who lives in the US, you've never really questioned money because the US dollar has been the dominant form of money. It has been the safest form of money in the world for as long as you've been alive, most likely. But for people who live in other parts of the world, the U.S.'s military, uh, political, and economic hegemony or superpowerness is really, really terrifying. And for many years, the U.S. has been able to basically impose its will on the world because it is such an economic powerhouse. Now, again, this is not a podcast about politics, so I don't want to debate the merits of that and whether it's quote unquote good or bad. But I will say that for people who've been watching what's going on with the Petro, for people who've been watching what's going on in Iran, whether they think it's good or bad, looking at what's happening here for them, I think is a very interesting starting point to imagine a world in which markets and monetary systems function differently. And to me, part of the exercise here that again is challenging is how do you evaluate this, not in a moralistic way, not in a judgmental way, because again, I think it's very difficult to do so objectively. Um, We're all subjective. And as you can tell, even my politics have tainted this brief podcast. But I think there is something to be said for this idea of 
what the introduction of digital currencies representing sovereign debt means for global markets, what it means for global politics. It's very, very, very interesting to me. And, you know, on that note, we tend to think of cryptocurrency as something that's empowering to individuals. It's censorship resistant. The government can't meddle in it, hypothetically, theoretically, and therefore it's empowering to us as individuals. But it can also be empowering to countries and to governments, to other governments who don't want uh, an opposing government to be meddling in their affairs, who want to be censorship resistant in that sense as well. And that's something that's very little talked about. And here's the other interesting and very timely part of this discussion. This isn't just about um, these digital currencies issued by governments. In fact, right in this moment, in February of 2019, there is conversation of sending the lightning torch or this lightning payment that's been passed on and on through about, I think, three or 400 different people now. There's talk of sending it to Iran. Just think about that. That's fascinating because what happens to a Bitcoin payment after it's been to Iran? Can it come back into a US-owned or a European-owned wallet? I don't know. Only if it's Zcash or Monero, right? (laughs) We will see. The world of crypto never fails to surprise. Just pumping some bags over here. But initial country offerings aren't only for those countries that are seeking to evade sanctions. There are examples of other countries looking to raise funding through this means for other reasons besides this sort of censorship-resistant sanction evasion reasoning that, that we discussed already. So let's go to Marshall Islands. We've talked about Venezuela. I've talked about Iran. Let's go to this small island in the Pacific that's home to about 50,000 people. It's a string of islands. And most importantly about the Marshall Islands, something that's very sad to note is as a result of global warming, um, as a result of the sea level rising, the Marshall Islands will f- not exist in 75 years if the water level continues to rise. And so the Marshall Islands is in dire need. It's tiny. It has only a small population, not a huge amount of tax revenue. And it's spread over a really large area. It's a string of islands. And it has a lot of trouble as a result, accessing capital markets, raising debt funding, and they generally don't have a great financial system. So you look at the Marshall Islands, and what happened here to me is a great example of how things can go really, really wrong. So the Marshall Islands has been exploring raising funds by an ICO. It's a token that they're calling the SOV, the S-O-V, short for sovereign, uh, as you may have guessed. But what really grinds my gears about this situation, what leaves a really bad taste in my mouth, is it seems that they've been sold on the idea by an Israeli blockchain startup called NEMA. Now, even the IMF has had to come out and urge the Marshall Islands to abandon this plan, saying that it's a distraction, it's a poor use of resources, and let's be honest, the Marshall Islands really does have bigger fish to fry here. But what I think you and I have talked about this before, what I think is so obscene here is that, number one, this startup was going to take 50% of the tokens. Now, that number may have changed, but that in any sort of concept is extremely exploitative. For one entity to own 50% of the tokens in exchange for creating technology is mind-boggling. 
The second piece is I think crypto investors were actually excited to invest in NEMA as a result, and that startup was able to raise a lot more money. And this, again, to me, is a good uh, lesson in some of the moral and some of the important ethical considerations to take into account when we talk about initial country offerings or sovereign governments using ICOs as a tool. Yeah, if you're a startup, your marketing plan should not be to take advantage of the suffering of another country's population. Just pro tip. It's not going to pan out well for you long term. Now, to, to move on from the Marshall Islands, we had one more quick case study that we wanted to run through before we launch into some slightly higher level discussion and then finally wrap this up. And that example is the case of Abkhazia. Now, most people I know have not even heard of a state called Abkhazia. That's because it, according to many people, does or does not exist, barely exists, perhaps. It's a former Soviet region uh, that, according to the country of Georgia, is now a part of Georgia, but according to Abkhazia itself, along with Russia, Nicaragua, Venezuela, and Syria, is its own state. Now, as you can imagine, it's rather hard for a place like Abkhazia to call up Goldman Sachs and ask for help raising debt. So therefore, it might be a little surprise to you at this point in the episode that in 2017, Abkhazia was talking about trying to raise a billion dollars in an ICO. So to recap, we've gone through some countries that have sought to raise capital through an ICO, an initial country offering, in order to evade sanctions, in order to access capital markets when they wouldn't otherwise be able to, in the case of the Marshall Islands, and also in the case of Abkhazia, where it's sort of a pseudo state. People aren't really sure of what they think of the status of it. Um, but let's go back to the broader market overall. What I think has been definitely observed is that the future of sovereign financing, the future of the way that countries interact, manage their debt, and overall fit into the global economy may well have something to do with digital currencies in some form or another. And this is where we get to one of my favorite topics, the topic of central bank issued digital currency, or CBDC. Jill, you've done some work with the IMF. Um, Do you want to talk briefly about the IMF and what they've been doing? So I mentioned the IMF earlier in the context of the Marshall Islands. Now, it turns out the IMF is no stranger when it comes to blockchain, cryptocurrencies, and digital currencies. They've been doing their homework on this stuff for years. And they put out a piece last November on the concept of central bank digital currencies. Now, that's not to say necessarily cryptocurrencies, not necessarily blockchain-based, although they do address that sort of classification of digital currencies. We'll link to this document in the show notes. John Kiff and the team who put it together are phenomenal. But it's worth differentiating because it can get confusing. Because on the one hand, we're talking about countries issuing tokens as a debt replacement, an initial country offering, say. And on the other hand, we're talking about countries issuing tokens as a form of digital currency, as a replacement for their own cash circulating within their system. And this could be centralized. Again, this could be somehow in some way, shape, or form distributed or decentralized using leveraging some kind of blockchain technology, perhaps. Um, This is all still much more theoretical. We have Mm -hmm. seen the likes of China exploring issuing 
a, a state issued digital currency, but again, not necessarily a cryptocurrency. But I know you have lots of thoughts on the implications of this, Maltem. Absolutely. So when we think about just the interaction of digital currencies of quote unquote blockchain technology with the world that we're used to interacting in, which is capital markets, debt markets and money markets, there is some really dystopian stuff that can happen. And one of the terms that I think has come up a lot more this year is the term surveillance capitalism. And what happens when you start putting all of a nation's transactions on a ledger? This idea of surveillance capitalism is really important to me because if we want digital currencies to be a tool for human freedom, for human privacy, and for the reintroduction of privacy to transactions, then it's very important for us to keep an eye on the way that digital currencies and governments and government-issued digital currencies start to develop. The example of the Petro is one that's clearly very dystopian. In my view, what's happening in Iran will very likely also be dystopian. But there are also examples where we could see digital currencies be hugely beneficial to countries that may have some unique form of resource, that may have some sort of unique market need, or that may have a really um, lacking financial infrastructure that want to leapfrog from using cash payments, for example, not just using digital correspondent bank payments, but to using potentially a form of cryptocurrency wallet to connect their market to the broader global market. And what's really interesting to me here is thinking about why debt matters. So the way we began this episode is by talking about debt as a way for governments to raise money. And here's why how governments raise money really matter. At the end of the day, markets are always about risk. People, the way they manage money, it's all about risk. And so sovereign debt is always going to be in supply. There's always going to be demand for it. So the way that this debt is going to get priced is based on risk. What I don't think people quite get yet is the medium you use, whether you use an ICO or not, is not going to change the end message. Because who wants to hold Venezuelan debt or Petros right now? The answer is a very clear and very resounding no one. That's right. And in times of crises, people want the safest asset. U.S. cash, U.S. debt, European cash, European debt is super safe. Safe assets are what drive economies, not shitcoins. Just look at Bitcoin. Bitcoin is the safe asset of the crypto ecosystem. Debt issued via the medium of a token of a cryptocurrency of a shitcoin is still just that. It's the debt of that country. And the likelihood is high that someone holding a Petro will never actually be able to redeem it for anything that isn't simply the Venezuelan regime rolling that type of debt into another type of debt forever and ever until the regime finally changes. And so at the end of this conversation, really what we're talking about is the concept of centralization, decentralization, and where this is all headed. So countries have been exploring using centralized digital currencies. The People's Bank of China actually owns uh, the largest number of blockchain patents in the world, something that gives you a lot of pause when you think about the role that the renminbi plays in the global market and the ongoing trade war between the US and China. Arguably, China, if they created a digital version of the renminbi, 
and then use that to expand into African payments. So look at all the places in Africa where the Chinese have strong foothold, where there are a lot of Chinese companies present. You could potentially see a world where instead of those countries relying on the US dollar as their peg, they instead rely on Chinese renminbi that are issued in digital form. Now, especially if the Chinese government makes those renminbi available very cheaply, or potentially decides to just give them away to people and seed their wallets with a bunch of renminbi when they set them up. So I think it's very interesting to think about what the future of the world could look like once we stop competing in just global financial markets, but once we start thinking about digital markets and how digital markets are evolving in different parts of the world that have long gone ignored or have long been excluded from the existing financial system. And I want to end this episode on one more positive note, which is that countries aren't just exploring these initial country offerings. They're not just exploring issuing panopticon centralized central bank digital currencies, but they're also actually, as it turns out, exploring digital currencies that I at least tend to think are more worthwhile. So for example, Argentina and Paraguay just recently settled an export deal using Bitcoin. Now, the deal was tiny. It was on the order of thousands of dollars. But my hope is that this could be a harbinger of things to come. And here's my crazy theory to round out this week, which has been quite a potpourri of different ideas. There are a few different ways that this might evolve. I tend to think that we're going to see an increasing intersection of the idea of sovereignty the way we conceive it today, nation states. We're going to see that evolve into corporation states. So Facebook issuing Facebook coin, JP Morgan issuing JPM coin. And we could potentially see a group of people come together and ICO an entirely new country. Could you ICO an island somewhere that someone owns that has its own set of rules and suddenly create a new player in the global market for sovereign debt? Don't know the answer, but I'm sure that if the cryptocurrency world is anything like it's been for the last few years, we will get many interesting edge cases and many things we never even predicted happening over the next few years. And if the cryptocurrency world stays anything like it has been, we'll also see the advent of the sovereign individual people trying to ICO themselves. So I'll be the first, Jill. I don't know who's (laughs) buying, but baby, I'm selling. (laughs) I think it'll sell better than the Petro Meltem. And with that, we'll wrap this week's episode up. Send us feedback. Leave us notes on Twitter. Leave us notes on Medium. We'll put show notes, as always, on Medium with links and with a summary of what we've talked about this week. We love hearing from you. And finally, don't forget to rate and subscribe us on iTunes. Thanks so much for tuning in. Hi everyone, Meltem and Jill here. To find more episodes of What Grinds My Gears, go to grindmygears.co. Episodes go live every Tuesday morning and you can find the links to the materials we reference in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing to What Grinds My Gears so that more people can find this show. Thanks for listening and we'll see you next time.